This is Sean Soderstrom, co-founder and CEO of Corded, and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast. This is Dan Breitbach with Corded, and you're listening to Real Talk, the podcast. The first episode recorded in 2022 of The Real Talk Podcast, I've had the pleasure of having several dozen of my friends, industry colleagues to join on my platform to talk all things real estate, real estate tech, business, life. We even drive off and, you know, with my buddy Nick Svensson, we talked about hunting, fishing in Finland, some random things, but back to reality here. It is early February, brutally cold outside in New York City. We are in an undisclosed location in downtown Manhattan at the headquarters of Corded, one of the up-and-coming leading-edge real estate tech firms that is not necessarily cutting into our space and compass, but is a definitely a, acting as a supplement to the tech offerings that are still being built for real estate brokers and real estate professionals on, on a national level. So I'm here sitting with Sean and Dan, both founder co-founders of Corded, and we're going to go deep dive into first their personal life, how we met, back, you know, backstory of uh, where we came from, and also go deep dive into their company. I'm also here with my co-host, Danielle. What's up, everyone? And Danielle will, will also be sending in some hard-hitting, gut-punching questions towards the end. So get ready, boys. Ready. All right. Just the hard ones. Just the hard one. Just the hard one. So uh, you know, next couple minutes, I want to take a couple minutes to talk about our section uh, which is the one-word answer section. Now, it, it, it could be two or three words. I'm not too picky, but I'm going to give you a phrase and then give me, maybe both of you can go if you guys want, give me the first thought or first phrase, the first sentence that comes to your mind when I give you these words, okay? So cue the background music and let's go. Number one, COVID real estate 2020. Crazy crisis. Hazy price inflation. See, three words, perfectly fine. That's good. Uh, we're on a roll. Do you want to add to that? I'll do the next one. Okay. COVID real estate 2021. New heights. N- new heights, absolutely. Not even, we're not talking Manhattan. We're talking Miami. We're talking Aspen, Vail. I'm sure where you were, Montana. Big Sky. Big Sky, Big Montana. Big Sky saw a huge pricing. Huge. Do you, do you guys watch the show Yellowstone? Yeah. Yeah, they talk shit about Big Sky. I believe. Oh, those right. out-of-towners and building their resorts and increasing the housing costs and kicking us out. I mean, That's it's true. Right. Well, it is pretty crazy. I saw that, you know, just over the course of the last couple of years, rents alone have gone up 100% in Big Sky. So it's just 100%. 100% increase. You know, and speaking of which, but, you know, I went to Big Sky last week and I've gone a couple of years with my buddies. The price of just short-term rentals Exponential. Last year to now has, has also doubled. Which Exponential. Is, and it's not like the quality has doubled. No, it's the exact same price. <laughs> this is the, Sh- the Case Schiller index doubling, right? That's so, right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's the same type of property, so the same type of property. So, totally. Absolutely. I mean, in, in addition to housing prices, a lot of agents saw new heights in their business. Which is great. Saw an article, read an article in your Wall Street Journal about Lake Tahoe and how the prices have just exponentially doubled. And the agents themselves were saying, this, we have never seen this in our careers. Mm-hmm. We, we, uh, we were looking at some of the numbers from Miami where we have our first market for quarter. And the market doubled in sales volume, 
But then 90% of that growth went to the top 10% of agents. Mm. So there's a group of people who really outperformed in the last year in Miami. Danielle, who's your favorite agent in Miami? Levy Meyer. Uh, shout out Levy. Shout out Levy. No air horn. No hesitation. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there was a video that Levy Meyer posted a couple weeks, uh, maybe a week ago. He sent it. It was a open house, a line to a house yeah. that stretched around the block. Yeah. At that point, as a buyer, I would just walk away. <laughs> Is it even worth it? But yes, okay, so uh, back to 2021, yeah, New Heights is what is your work. Okay, number three, real estate reality television. Glamour. Glamour. And, and you know, the other thing is what I see, this is an and amazing tension. Yeah. I feel like there's just, there's, there's great reality TV in the housing market. Sure, are you, are you a fan of uh, reality TV? Broadly speaking, no. However, I have, uh, because a number of the agents we talk to are actually participants in like million dollar listing and stuff like that, I have started to be a little bit better versed in it. Okay. And, uh, it does seem a little bit more glamorous than the act of I had of renting my apartment in Williamsburg. <laughs> so um, maybe there's a little self-selection bias there, but I think that there's a huge popularity in the show, and, and, and I think not just in, in Million Dollar Listing. What's the one in L.A.? What's the big one? Uh, Selling Sunset. Selling Sunset. Oh, my God. I have to talk. Every person, that one of my friends that asks is like, do you know the Selling Sunset people? I'm like, oh, you know, we're working on it. We, did, <laughs> we met them yeah. in Inman. Oh. I think it's useful for people who do it, regardless of what, whatever yeah. you think. It's, it's ultimate marketing machine. Yeah. Incredible marketing. Oh, yeah. I mean, the trajectory of some of these brokers, if they were not on the show versus they are on the show, mm -hmm. not all of them, but some of them definitely, you know, help their exposure and in, in, uh, getting the, uh, the influence of appropriate clients. So, mm -hmm. okay, cool. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is for you, Sean. Rob Refkin. Easy. Inspiring. Inspiring. <laughs> that's right. That's right. What did you think of him as, a, as an ex-boss? He was great. Yeah. Um, he gave me the opportunity to learn about the space and to get involved at Compass. And that's part of the reason that we're here today. So yeah, really that's right. One of the reasons why many of us are still friends, even to this day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Miami real estate. Ooh, this is... Waterfront new construction. Yes. I feel like that is such a huge part of Miami, especially you know, the experience of flying down to Miami. You see basically you know, Miami, 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 waterfront, like built. built yeah, built, yeah. High rises. Up and it's just rises. continually, continually coming. Cranes. In. And a lot of the folks that we talk to, it's just, it's such a powerhouse in within the city uh, in terms of inventory coming on um, and where people basically want to live. So the, the first thing that always pops up in my head is, these big, new, beautiful luxury condos all on the waterfront. Mm -hmm. Right. Underst yeah, that, that's understandable. Even after the, uh, the seaside incident, Oceanside mm -hmm. incident, mm -hmm. there still seems to be an appetite and hunger for new construction in both Brickell and South Beach, and even, even south, of, uh, south of Brickell, I, I suppose. And it's fascinating to me that, just like the Upper East Side, the more high-rises there are in a neighborhood, the more inventory there is. Thus, the more competition you have as an investor or a homeowner. But that doesn't seem to deter any of these buyers mm -hmm. in Miami. Well, I think what happened in Surfside is that was an older building. Yeah. And so there's a preference to have these views. And the easy way to do that is to do it in a big building. And now there's all of this super luxury new properties that are coming up. True. That Frankly, it's just matching the demand. Um, even though there's so many buildings coming up, I think they're all performing very well. Right, right. You know, in Miami, just very, very interesting. Obviously, it's always been a destination for international buyers and whatnot, but I do feel like that has increased pretty dramatically also in the last 
a handful of years. And these new condos, in many ways, it's you know, it's kind of like buying a bank vault a little bit. Yeah. Right? Like I think a lot of it is a place that people are parking cash. Yeah. Uh, in this environment as well. Yep. Yep. I agree. It's becoming New York City for sure. The real estate tech space in 2022. I would say it's evolving. And depending on how up-to-date you are as an agent, it can be overwhelming. Right. And there's a lot of choice, but there's not that much guidance on what to do. What about as consumers? Do you think it's also overwhelming? I think so. A lot of the innovation that's coming into the space is actually quite consumer-oriented. When you think about iBuyers and power buyers that are giving you know, the ability to do financing for cash offers. Yeah. But who do you go to for what is still very confusing for a lot of people. Sure. No, that's not understandable. Well, follow-up question for you, Sean, is what do you think the real estate, real estate tech space was in, let's just say, 2020, two years ago? Mm-hmm. Would you have another word for that? I think in 2020, it was exciting. Yeah. And now the rate of change has picked up. And as a result, people are kind of flooded with choice right. in a way that wasn't ever true to that extent right. that is it is today. Yeah, I think if you Google real estate technology companies, uh, there are a couple of links that will pop up. I mean, there are probably 100, 200 different companies just in the United States mm-hmm. that you've never heard of, mm-hmm. you and I have never heard of, mm-hmm. that is, you know, so-and-so on paper doing extraordinary things. But yeah, I think that we're, in, we're at that point in reality where the cream will rise to the top, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Okay. Dan, inflation. Not transitory. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think yeah, it, it is an interesting difference here. Uh, my back back in the day, I was an economic consultant and, and spent a little bit of my early career actually as an economist. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's always this big debate: what what is inflation? Yeah. Right. And I think yeah. we're seeing this really interesting situation where we have had this expanding monetary base for many, many, many years. But the supply chain incident that we see and the basically the disruptions across that and you know not just in the United States but globally has really been what's powered the inflation that we're seeing today. It's really interesting to see those things work itself out. So I mean it comes through in the housing market and in asset prices and you know obviously we saw the stock market take an extraordinary amount of, of gains over mm-hmm. the last handful of years. I'll be very curious to see if that's going to abate in the next you know, handful of months, and my anticipation is probably not. Mm-hmm. I think that there is a, a real change in the supply chain that's that's actually in fact, uh, impacting prices. And we see it throughout the entire entire course of building houses to repurchasing of new houses and rentals. I see. Yeah, real bull over here. That's great. I like to hear that. Uh, number 10, sellers in 2021. Sellers in 2021 very much wanting to join the bandwagon and sell their home. Mm-hmm. However... A lot of sellers were thinking, I'm curious to sell or I'd sell at this price, but where do I buy? <laughs> well, so unless you're an investor, there's sometimes a little bit of an issue. That's right. And if you think about your typical uh, homeowner in Big Sky, Montana, you know, owned their townhouse for 30 years. Now it's worth five million bucks, but where are they going to, they can sell it great. They could liquidate. As a married couple, you can only file you're only exempt up to, if you file taxes together, you're only exempt up to half a million dollars in taxes if it's your primary residence. So you're going to pay a lot in capital gains. Also, where are you going to move afterwards? Mm-hmm. It's a problem. Yeah. Okay. It's an interesting implication for the agent because if you're priced out of your neighborhood because you've sold and then you have nowhere to buy and then you consider buying in an adjacent or different geography, but your agent is hyper-locally specialized in That's right. you worked in, 
can there be an opportunity to introduce another agent? 100%. But that kind of collaboration is relatively new. It's a relatively new problem. And right. so uh, it's going to be interesting to see which kind of agents can kind of take advantage of that sale to buy transaction. And right. Maybe there's a referral in there. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. You know, when we look at Florida, and we had a, a, this conversation with another number of the agents down there. A lot of folks, for example, have moved into Miami two years ago, and they're getting such huge offers on their their property they just purchased. They're actually willing to resell it, but then where do they go? <laughs> and actually, there's some of these, you know, homestead. I wouldn't call them secondary markets or anything else, right? But outside of your kind of core South Beach, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, or you know, Delray markets, Palm Beach, you're not going, going there. Yeah, yeah, they're going to thinking about is there opportunities around Tampa? Are there opportunities in the Panhandle potentially? Jacksonville, yeah. House on a beach for half the price, and you you know just made what a was good, a good, good chunk of, of change yeah. over a very short amount of time. So there is this kind of this question of geographic mobility, maybe a little bit more, and I think people are just a little bit more open to thinking about are there alternatives to some of these cities where the prices are crazy. Hundred percent. In addition to everyone thinking, I don't care if the prices are crazy, I want to move to Miami, right? right. So there's still a lot of that going on as well. The other, the other one I'd add, I know we're supposed to get through no, this no, section please, quickly, okay. is off-market, <laughs> yeah. where we yeah. see a lot of our uh, agents on, on Corded saying, is there a way that I can figure out what the price would be if I could sell this house without putting it on the market? Mm. And so we've created the opportunity to kind of connect those two agents and say, you know, talk, the owner would only sell for $6 million. Is there a buyer out there? And right. try to connect those opportunities which I think is a pretty interesting innovation to kind of anticipate the market. So it's, it's probably a very interesting tool in an up market like we are mm -hmm. today, mm -hmm. right? right? If we could get a search done where we know the seller will take an X amount of money and it is, it's, it's an up market and there are buyers that will reach that figure, maybe not ne next month, but next quarter, mm -hmm. that's, that would be something interesting that uh, I'm sure brokers would want to lean on uh, if there was a tool like that. All right, let's pivot. I like to use, use that word on this podcast. We're going to pivot, cue different music, and we are going to go into warm-up questions. We're going to talk a little bit about you guys. You know, we, we talked about the market. We talked about real estate for a minute. We're going to deep dive into that next anyway. Uh, but for this section, let's talk about, you know, your life, personal, you know, let, let's let the audience like you before they listen to you, right? That's <laughs> All right. So uh, you guys, well, maybe we'll just go back and forth with this, but... Uh, uh, Sean, why don't you go first? Like, give me your go-to activity in New York City. I'd say Barry's boot camp followed by socializing in a friend's apartment. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see the, uh, the the berries and the and the socializing on your uh, private Instagram profile. So, I, <laughs> as authentic as Sean can get. Okay. Dan, your New York City go-to restaurant. Go-to restaurant. So especially these days, I live I live in South Williamsburg, so these I end up at Dumont Burger okay. more often than I'd like to sure. admit. Great classic cheeseburger. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely a, one of if my I favorites. Get fancy, I go too. down to Peter Luger's cheeseburger. Oh, that Peter Luger's uh, cheese lunch lunch menu. Yeah, yeah that's right. cheeseburger. I heard that's it's good. It's amazing. I heard that one is good. It's very doable. Do you like Peter Luger's little roll too? You know, For I dinner? like it that they're not really nice to me. Like that, they show up with that big porterhouse steak, which you can really only get like once in a couple of years. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I agree. But yeah, I love Peter Luger. Yeah, I, I, I think like the service, though. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I remember the last time I was there, uh, the girl I was with said, how big is the potato? And the guy looked at her and said, it's a potato. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that's a classic. It's, it's such that's a, a classic beer. beer. Yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of a, they're kind of rude to you. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's cool. It's a tourist, tourist spot, I think. I, 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 if I was going to drop a lot of money, I'd probably go to like a, you know, like a Gallagher's or a Quality Meats or... Hey, that's just those me. are also delicious. Oh, do you have a go-to restaurant time real quick? I know this is a good, this is an important question. I love Shuko, Japanese restaurant near oh. Union Square. Okay. Near the Compass Office. Okay. And then Lama Inn in Williamsburg. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's Peruvian. right. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've walked by there a bit. I wanted to say Rayo's. That's that's my go-to. Oh, Rayo's. That's where I go once or twice a week. No big deal. But Dan's been once. He gets a lot of mileage off my half. Is it Rayo's or Rouse? Definitely Rayo's. Okay. You know what's funny? Uh, one of our tenants in an, in an undisclosed location in New York City, on off Twenty First Street, lives above Rayo's. Okay. And she said that it was quiet during the pandemic, and she does not like it now. Uh, but that's the, you know, benefit of, I guess, cost benefit of living in that location on that block. All right, back to Sean. What makes New York City so good to live and work in? Mm. Uh, I would say cosmopolitan and interesting people. <laughs> what, a, what a great place to be. You're constantly surrounded by people that you're inspired by, that you like to have fun with. Extremely talented people. Yeah, yes. yeah. New York's like a raging river that, like, when you choose to, <laughs> you can kind of wade in and it will just take you, you know? Like, there's always so much energy and, like, you know, to some degree, everyone kind of feels like it's probably the end of a Saturday night, like, pulling on the sides of the river to scrape yourself out, right? <laughs> Get me out of here! And, and I feel like that's, New York has that, that intense energy and vibe to it that you can kind of, it will take you as fast or as slow as you let it. Yeah, it's honestly yeah, addicting, isn't it? it huh? That intensity is addicting. You can't get that anywhere else. That's right. Hey, you can spend a couple weeks in Bozeman or Big Sky, but you're always going to want to crave New York City energy, right? Mm. Uh, Dan, favorite city, state outside of New York City and why? I'm a huge New Orleans fan. Okay. I love New Orleans. I think just, just right outside of like downtown and kind of Frenchman and Tremens, just world-class jazz. Obviously, New Orleans basis of jazz. Right? Sure. You know, you know how to spell uh, jazz, right? Oh, what do you play? I play the guitar. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know. What kind of guitar? Acoustic, jazz blues? Oh, jazz blues. A little steel? A little bit of a, uh, both electric and acoustic. Okay. But no, I'm trying to get creative. Obviously, I was so good that I uh, became a data scientist. <laughs> so, you know, leave a little gaps for it. But uh, I still... Uh, Huge fan, love jazz, love uh, New Orleans, the kind of just just great vibe, just yeah. organic um, musicianship. 100%, 100%, yeah, and, and j jazz music itself is is uh, definitely more sophisticated than, you know, modern music, so I could see if, if you are into music, you have to be into jazz, you gotta be into jazz. I mean, it makes you sound cooler, for sure. Way cooler, that's, yeah. That's true. Yeah, way cooler. <laughs> uh, going back to music, though, you know, as a data scientist, you have to be disciplined to become a data scientist. It's the same process of becoming a musician. You have to be disciplined. You have to learn the basis, right? You have to know yeah, the chords, you absolutely. gotta learn the rhythm, you gotta learn the key signature, time signature, all that stuff, so. You gotta have that base foundation of that discipline. Oh, I gotta learn this, build it back, you know, the building blocks, just like how you became who you are today. You know, it's real interesting in that regard. I, I kind of see a lot of similarities between that, right? Effective musicians, they, they learn the chords, they learn the scales, they learn the chops, but when they're playing, they don't think about no. that. 
Right, it's all about, those are just tools and pieces you have to, to, Building to play the, the music, right? You gotta know as, it. As a data scientist or as a, as a computer scientist or a quant nerd, right, you find all these things in terms of, you know, this is the particular type of machine learning algorithm and this is the type of, you know, data manipulation strategies, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, right? But fundamentally, you kind of let all that stuff go and think, what problem am I solving? Right. And right. then, you know, you, you know, those things are just uh, and hammers and drills. Your, right? your training follows that. But That's right. Yeah. So I think both of those things are foundational stuff, but you know, to a, a real player, a real data scientist, it is about how you solve the problem or play the tune. It's not about how you, you know, basically just represent the tune. Yeah. This, uh, is, this is a whole other podcast episode, guys. Yeah, we, right. this is, uh, we just started a channel called How Musicians perform in the real world and and then and then derive how how musicians how they learn and what they've learned applies to what they do that's totally separate from music but in the real world i think that's a that's a really good podcast all right, next <laughs> <laughs> all right sean do you have a role model in, in the real estate industry who and why yeah i think so i would say david doctorow who's the ceo of realtor.com oh okay so interesting a mentor and a role model Oh, you know him. He came Great. from McKinsey and then went to Expedia and then went to Realtor.com. He's a brilliant strategist. Um, he's been able to pick up on this complicated industry so quickly. And he's an incredible people leader. He's just a really good guy. And he was able to kind of jump into this new organization in a brand new industry and establish a ton of credibility internally. And now you're seeing it externally as well. He's, uh, he's, he's a really inspiring how, how long has he been a, a well, Realtor.com has been around for a while. I, I don't know much about him, but how long has he been in that Not position? Not more than two years. Okay, so it's fairly recent. Mm -hmm. What was he doing beforehand? I believe he was at Expedia. Okay, oh, Expedia, okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Industry, uh, it's one of the leading websites in our field. Mm -hmm. yeah. So They're a subsidiary of Move Inc. that has a whole bunch of different uh, oh, I didn't know this. Uh, media and entertainment type companies, but that group, obviously, Realtor.com, is going head-to-head -head with Zillow, and now with CoStar, that's coming into New York with CitySnap. And so there's kind of a dogfight going on in the online listing portal world. Interesting. Really but CoStar is, is, is all commercial. I, I don't see them really impeding in Realtor.com, or uh, are they? Well, they bought a company called HomeSnap, which okay. is actually some agent-friendly tools, realtor-friendly tools outside of New York. Uh -huh. And now they're funding... CoStar is funding HomeSnap to build a company called CitySnap, which is intended to be the direct competitor to StreetEasy in New York. Got it. Oh, so it's okay. going to be really interesting to see how those two really big companies go head to head, and then Realtor.com is trying to fight with them as well. So there's kind of a three three dog race on the on the portal front. Oh my goodness! So who knew that the the tech war behind websites have been. Uh... So intense. We, we only we only see well on our end in New York City. We only see you know we don't even see Zillow. We yeah. just see just Street Easy, yeah. and that's well, it. And so. Zillow purchased Street Easy. How long ago? Uh, about seven, seven five no seven years. Seven years ago. Okay. Six seven years ago. A, long, a while ago. Yeah. A while ago. Shout out Jared Kleinstein who's been on my uh, podcast as well. One of the founders of Street Easy, and left when uh, Zillow purchased them. It was like seventy million dollars or something. Mm -hmm. I mean hindsight is I mean hindsight was a, that that was a great purchase. That's yeah. a, one of their best acquisitions. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, Dan, I'm not sure if you have any of this or many of this. What is an insult that you received that you are proud of? Ooh, you talk a lot for a data nerd. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely happened at McKinsey. <laughs> McKinsey. Yeah, you so, talk a lot, huh? So, uh, yeah, as Sean was alluding, we, we both used to work at McKinsey. That's obviously where, yeah. we, where we met. Yeah. And we decided to kind of go through all of this. And this, I spent a lot of time in windowless 
basement rooms writing code, right, and doing a lot of that. But eventually, very glamorous. Very, very glamorous. <laughs> uh, I thought the McKinsey office is uh, the bright and shiny tower over in the Hudson Yards. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> except <laughs> not the room that I got. Except that's where you got. I think a lot of this stuff, right, was was. You know, I definitely got pulled out of the basement every now and then to, to say, will you help explain what any of this means? Oh, okay. And I think there was that time I was like, you give me the opportunity, I will talk, talk, talk. Oh, good, good, good. Yeah, so, yeah. In, in that regard, uh, I think there's often that. Is it derogatory? Maybe it's not totally clear. Uh, I definitely talk too much given the opportunity. Uh, and then people find out, it's like, oh, you spend most of your time solitary writing code. Weird. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's definitely a good thing to have if you're talkative and per- most... Importantly, personable, which I think you very much are. You could become a broker, actually, if you want. You could be very talkative. Uh, You're a real estate agent. I deal well with rejection as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Is that? <laughs> it's more from his personal life. I got a lot of uh, personal things that carry over my professional. <laughs> <experience. laughs> they say that if you have a high EQ, you have a low IQ, and vice versa. You have a, a low IQ, you have a high EQ. It looks like you have both. Or or not. Or not. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I don't know how do you? The personal life part, that's funny. Uh, point noted, especially for our listeners. Let's see, final question. Who answered the last one? Was it, do you, how about both of you guys answer this last question? Uh, do you guys have a morning routine? I do smoothie, gym, coffee. Berries? Usually not berries in the morning. Okay, okay. You do two a days. Yeah, if I do berries, it's in the afternoon. It's in the afternoon, okay. What about you? I'm like, I get up pretty early. So Dan I, wakes up. Like what time? Wow. Somewhere in that gap, right? 4.45. the night before, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But not, I get up early, have absurd amounts of coffee, and I knock out a good chunk of my non-interactive work generally before the day starts. So, like, when we, when we get... Coding to, work. Well, not even anymore. We, fortunately, we hired a guy, uh, Mr. Kevin Bohansky. Um, to do a lot of our, our, our data engineering work. So he kind of took my fingers off the keyboard. So in many ways, actually, now, I spend a lot of my time reviewing our designs in the morning and trying to get feedback and, and think about things like, what's the right color for this uh, badge? But then also just a, a bunch of the standard stuff that everyone's doing, answering emails, yeah, sure. replying to those things. But I try to get most of those things in the review and get everything right. So I'm a big morning person. Uh, 4.45 is an extraordinary hour to start to work. Now, when you go on your ski trips, it probably helps because, well, not only are you on mountain time two hours behind, but you're waking up. If you're working up at 4.45 mountain time, that's uh, 2.25 a.m. East Coast time. <laughs> you, you, you have more than enough time to get ready for the first run and turns and all of that, plus more. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the <laughs> funny thing is what I found over the, the course of this last week, not only am I getting up a little early because I'm going from East Coast to mountain time, but all my friends are just uh, so they get up a little bit later. So I had the, the unique privilege of cleaning up the, the kitchen before the kitchen everyone before. else got up after. after oh, you're the best travel mate right there. And, and having, yeah, again, just like 15 cups of coffee. Oh, uh, 15 is pretty aggressive, huh? Pretty aggressive. What time do you, will you wake up? I usually wake up around 6.45. Yeah, that's normal, yeah. Six if I have something to reach out to Dan about, I know I'm going to get a response within five minutes. I was going to say, Sean, Sean will pick me on the earlier side. Yeah, okay. Sure. But he knows, after, after 9 o'clock, the odds of getting me, like 9 p.m., it's very good. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, you'll get a better round, what, 9, 9, 10 o'clock? I'm like a, a 10 o'clock plus or minus half an hour. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's good, respectable. Yeah. Very grown up. Uh, all right, so we're gonna get to, let's get to the general talking points. Sean, you know, I mean, as a Compass alum, and this is where we met, why did you decide to join 
compass af after working at McKinsey. I mean, being McKinsey is like the Harvard of consulting. I mean, I'm not, I'm no, I don't know everything, but I, from what I know, I think McKinsey is probably one of the, the top institutions for work for for a big corporate company. Why would you want to come to a smaller startup? Yeah, so I'm uh, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but I had kind of <laughs> two tours of duty at McKinsey. That's McKinsey, right. McKinsey, Compass McKinsey. That's right. Um, second switch, people up and ask me about. So the first one was pretty obvious for me. It was to leave this place that was a great place to learn and was a good jumping off point. Yeah. To get interested in this new industry, real estate, and then to have an opportunity uh, in the role that I had at Compass, which was to, to lead the expansion team yeah. um, and, and kind of those operations nationally, that was an amazing experience and inspired a lot of the, the thoughts behind Corded. But the reason to then go back to McKinsey was they kind of invited me to come back to uh, help build out and lead the, the residential real estate practice. And the second time back, I was much more directed and focused on real estate. I got to meet Dan and Joe Orsioli. So you met on the you guys met on the second stint. The yeah, first right. project back, I was with Dan and Joe working in residential real estate, doing some pretty interesting stuff with advanced analytics and predictive analytics in brokerage, and uh, you know we instantly hit it off and began to think about what we could do outside of McKinsey. But it took about four years to to you know learn a lot more and kind of figure out exactly what we wanted to do. Uh -huh. How is McKinsey's real estate? data, platform, tech, I mean, is it something that industries like Compass or Zillow or, or Redfin, something that they should take note and be not worried about, but be aware about? So maybe I can answer that at yeah. a strategy level. Maybe Dan, you can answer that from like a analytics perspective. You know, there was traditionally not much uh, involvement of the, cons of the consulting players in the real estate space no. because the nature of the business, whether you're a brokerage or whether you're developer. a real estate owner and developer, yeah. hadn't really changed for a long time. No. Yeah. Over the last 10 years, it's begun to change. And so for the first time, CEOs of brokerages of you know these big owner-operators, even the online listing portals, are wondering, how do we win in the future? Because the nature of the competition is changing and yeah. there's a lot of external capital coming into the space to fund a lot of innovators, including you know Compass. And so what McKinsey's doing is not just strategy work, a lot of what we were doing together was digital business building, which essentially means coming in and acting like a startup within the context of a bigger company, whether it's building out new technologies or building out new digital products or how, even helping them to hire for talent and, and roles that they are really not used to. Maybe you can give some examples of the work that we did. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, so I think you know, in, in real estate in particular, I think there's been such an emphasis on the consumer, yeah. right, that, you know, early stuff that we had focused on was actually for the enterprise. How do you help the executive teams make better decisions of with the myriad of things that they have to this, but This is what uh, McKinsey was focused on. Correct. Right. Enterprise. It's, it, we started in enterprise in a lot of these because it's just a, a, a view to this is that there has been just, there's so much data, there's so many touch points and they just have not been internalized by most of the you know, kind of senior leadership sure. folks on the team. Sure. They, you know, I get there's a, a tendency to, to maybe focus on the traditional type of KPIs that you've had, right? Okay. So I think that that was a big emphasis on us, which is just how do you support the, the executive enterprise, make better decisions with real estate data, right? And I think that was one thing. And I think as, as Sean was alluding, we've, we, we, they moved into the more of the consumer-oriented space for concepts that were really client-driven. And I think that's probably the most important thing 
to, to think about how McKinsey plays in the space is it's still very much so client-driven as opposed to, say, the set of technologies McKinsey develops and sells, which doesn't, you know, is, is, is not really the, the game they're playing. Right. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, I think, you know, one thing that we did work on publicly that I think we can share that on, that's you know, valid is Sean and I actually worked together with RxR to help build out their digital lab and suite of digital products Very cool. on top of basically their kind of concept, which is, you know, how do we think about real estate as an operating system and a service as opposed to just four walls? Right. And I think that was a really interesting concept for us to work at because it came both at the executive level and influenced the way the organization had to think about technology, but it was actually consumer-oriented. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the first products that we put together was, what is basically the interactive digital layer for a rental building? Mm -hmm. right? And there are a whole bunch of this, and they've, they've actually productized this over the last mm -hmm. How do you monetize within the multifamily context? Right. How do you do housekeeping, cleaning? How do you do community and events? You know, all of these things that the renter wants, but that the developer traditionally didn't get involved with, right. but now has the opportunity, if they did have that digital layer, to actually enhance their yield from the building. Right. So that was just one example of a real estate developer context, but we did mm -hmm. a bunch of things with brokerages um, and, uh, and the online listing portals as well. Got it. Okay. So it's much more comprehensive than I thought, and uh, McKinsey has been involved in almost uh, uh, every part of aspect of real estate that I didn't know they were involved in, so that's very interesting to to hear about. Switching gears a little bit, both of you guys, before you got into, you know, maybe even even after you left Compass, what has been your individual experiences been like, maybe on a personal level or with family or, or your friends with real estate brokers? Mm -hmm. I think for me, prior to Compass, it was minimal. I think I had primarily just heard stories of people who had tried to do the transaction themselves and mm -hmm. gotten burned by it. And they'd mm -hmm. often say, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, mm -hmm. but I thought I could do it myself. Which speaks, I think, a little bit to increased consumer education on the role of the agent. And that will help with defending commissions, that will help with selecting the right agent for you, which right. is, again, something that we're going to try to help with. Huge. Um, so that advocacy for like the role of the agent, I think, is still, there's still a need for that. Mm -hmm. What about you? When you rented on North 4th Street, was there an, an agent in the, on, on that landlord side? Or? Oh, yeah, of course there was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That street is filled with brokers. In New York, <laughs> I, it's, it, the, the rental agent scene here is very different than obviously anywhere else. I, I do think that that probably influenced like the hustle that you see from New York uh, rental brokers or rental agents in particular. Yeah, sure, is, sure. It's kind of crazy. I, my experience on a personal level, right? I often, I don't think about them as an agent per se. I think they're my advisor, right? Mm -hmm. This is the person I kind of need to rely on to, to figure it out. And, and I think that that has been accentuated over time to think, you know, again, my experience, I don't, I'm a renter, right? I only own, I don't own anything, right? But thinking about how complicated that process is, and especially in New York where you have very complicated tax laws and you have even more people with bigger piles of money to compete with, you really do need someone to help navigate through this. So in many ways for, for me, I think about the real estate agent is not an agent, but is my is my real estate advisor. Advisor, yeah. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. okay. For, so for, for you guys are a startup, it's a two-part question. Do, do you guys raise money? Did you guys, do you guys have to raise money or did you guys have to, are you guys self-funded between your own money? And then also, you know, in terms of metrics, you know, how do you guys ensure that the startup is successful? Do you guys follow, is it 
a timeline? Is it you have to raise, you have to have a gross revenue by X number of months or years, or we have to hire an X number of people because we, we raised this much money? Like, how do you guys follow those metrics? So this is a two-part question, uh, and then we'll get more into the quarter itself. Mm-hmm. You want to take the first? I'll take the second. Yeah, sure. So, you know, in terms of how we specifically approach it, I think, again, Sean and Joe and I all were coming from McKinsey and our, our early time we spent was, you know, with us and an, another one of our senior engineers that we are, uh, that we hired early on over a lot of uh, digital nomad uh-huh. around the planet right now. Okay. But, you know, the earliest stages, you know, we had kind of that core team that we could build everything. We had the real estate experience. And so, you know, our early handful of months, we really kind of funded out of our own pockets, right? Which basically just means... No one made any money. Um, but, you know, shortly thereafter, we actually did get kind of a pre-seed investment round okay. that, you know, came from friends and family, former colleagues at McKinsey. We actually oh, did good. have uh, a local uh, venture capital fund participate in as well. And a little bit of that was how can we expand our team, get a few more engineers, get some designers that could could do a little better job than Sean and Joe and I would you know design experience. Uh, and actually kind of start that process of building a more effective product. And I think from that perspective, the, the, the investment, I think, was, was super, super successful and very useful and allowed us to figure out a lot of stuff and build them and, and actually be able to attract and hire great people as well. And, you know, we, we're in the process right now of our, our actually our proper seed round investment. So that would be Series A. This, this right here will be a, a Series Technically, it's a series C. Oh, C. Right? Okay. It's, the, the, it's kind of the, the funniness of uh, what is an A, B, C, C. Right, yeah, what is exactly I feel like the, the, those, those kind of marks or threshold have moved over time in terms of what constitutes an A versus C. Mm-hmm. It's funny, in many ways, you often see seed rounds that are larger than a lot of A rounds mm-hmm. in right. these days. Of course. And I think yeah, it's, yeah. it's partly a function of, you know, obviously the markets are a little wild. Uh, mm-hmm. wilder now than they have been, uh, both in public and private market and, and venture capital. Mm-hmm. Going back to you, Dan, I mean, when you raise money like this, is, uh, is the goal to have a bigger brand? I mean, is that better for you guys? For example, like, you know, Compass was proud to announce uh, a, re- a fundraising E by SoftBank. You know, they, they, is mm-hmm. that the goal for every startup to get a Wellington Management or one of these big guys, Founders Fund or... And recent Horowitz, I don't know, these guys, is that, yeah. does that give you more confidence as, a, as somebody that wants to raise money or does it doesn't matter? It could be family, friends, as long as you have the liquidity. You know, that, that's a great question. I always make the joke, you know, that expensive cash and cheap cash spends the same. Right? <laughs> uh, so you kind of, I don't know why you would pay extra for it. But I, I think in, in our stage, in terms of where we were at, it, it is probably less what is the strategic fit of the fund and the people that are working. Does, and how much time does it buy? Right. That, that's really, I think, a little bit more from our perspective because we had a good view of the things that we were interested in doing. We had enough um, kind of expertise and relationships in the industry that we could do it. We just need a little bit of time and some, some folks in capacity. So early on, I think, you know, we took a little bit more of the philosophy that everyone's money spends the same. Let's, yeah. let's work with, uh, you know, friendly, patient folks that can, you know, basically still support us and give us that autonomy that, you know, to, to have some of the decision making and continue. I do think over time there there is a lot of value in getting the right strategic partner. You know, folks that are emphasizing the same type of values and principles in addition to the kind of business strategy and the approach. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
you know, our, our current round, we're working with, you know, some folks that are, you know, explicitly looking for technical teams with expertise uh, in engineering and design and specifically, as opposed to, say, folks that outsource all of that, mm -hmm. you know, to kind of bring it on. So I think, you know, there was an obvious strategic overlap there just in terms of fit that we thought was good. And obviously, as we go down the road, like, would we be excited to raise tons and tons of money? I mean, sure, because it means we were probably successful, but I don't think the goal is raising huge amounts of money. The goal is to build a sustainable business. Right, build that tech. Is, that is, you know, actually being able to generate revenue and, and turn into a profitable Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that connects to your second question, right, which is around the metrics. Right. So, <clears throat> you know, back in 2013, when we were joining Compass, Urban Compass at the time, a lot of the venture-backed companies that were very cash-rich would promote their count of employees as some super success that they had achieved because they had a big round of funding and they could afford to spend money on all of these employees. And I think, thankfully, the market has become a lot more rational since then. If you just look in the last week, there are about five plus big prop tech companies between Series C and, and Series E who have laid off 25% plus of their staff. Better.com? Better, Homey, Rhino. I mean, like a whole bunch of companies. Oh, Rhino, yes. These are all yes, good, these are good companies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, no disparagement to, to any of them. No, but, no. But, you know, that I think is a result of this kind of hyper growth, growth at all costs. And I think that's not really what uh, we're seeing, you know, investors looking for no. in 2022. No. That might have been a 2021 goal. Uh, in 2022, it's much more rational. So when we think about... You know, do we raise money as a as a goal? No. Do we raise mm -hmm. money to be able to hire the right size team that allows us enough time to build something great? Absolutely. Yeah. That's it's kind of indirect. Um, and so then the metrics that we really measure to are things like user adoption. So how many agents do we have? How much business value do we provide to them? We can measure that in terms of how often they come back to the platform and how much time they spend on the platform. Internally, we think about the velocity at which we release products. So mm -hmm. how quickly can we get products that are good to market? And then, you know, really important for us also just personally is how happy are the folks on the team and how good is our retention? Okay. And if we can get those two great with a really good team, I actually think everything else follows. Yeah. So we really start with, you know, one of the most difficult things at the beginning was how do we recruit people outside of the founding team to come join an industry that likely they've never participated in before. Mm -hmm. And how do you get them you know, really excited to come change their career and do that at a really early stage? That was probably the more difficult than any of the building that we've had to do, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah, I think that is, you know, we obviously are coming from a background where, you know, generally speaking, like there are so many applicants, it's about how do you whittle down to the handful of the few. The biggest thing that we had to do was to do the proactive outreach. Yeah, right? of course. No one is coming to courted.io <laughs> slash, you know, jobs in the same velocity. Obviously, if anyone on this podcast would like to, I would encourage you to. But Inboxes um, are open. That's right. That's so true. I think, you know, one of the big differences, we, we really need to, to proactively go find some folks. And, the, and that took, you know, a lot more effort and kind of time than we think. And it, honestly, that you spend so much time selling the company and the team that already exists as opposed to interviewing necessarily, that it, it kind of makes the process almost even a little bit longer. Right, and right. Because it's, it's, a, it, it's, some, it's a little opposite. Normally, it's kind of like, 
hey, do I want them to work at this company? No, no. And once we offer them a letter, then we sell them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, have to, hey, we sell them, we get them interested, we try to get this, such that they're willing to be like, okay, yeah. I'm actually willing to take this yeah. uh, potentially big jump in this company that I've never heard of before that didn't exist a year ago. Uh -huh. I think that that's been, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, a, it's a good challenge. It's a good skill to master, right? <laughs> Convincing someone to interview for you. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, I, uh, that's what we do. Did, did you guys use any that. like headhunting services or any sort of? We haven't had too much success with that. Mm -hmm. The kind of the new thing, you know, that was kind of a big thing. And Nolan Greenberg. Nolan, Nolan I was about to say yeah. shout out, yeah, and, uh, shout out Nolan. He, he was so good at that, and we and and we do actually collaborate with him. Um, but what the the new thing in hiring is to have platforms um, mm -hmm. where you can. It's basically a network where you can uh, post your job, they apply, and so we've used a couple of those okay. platforms okay. as opposed to headhunters. Right, um, okay. Yeah. Understood. Uh, actually, speaking of Nolan, he found uh, our friend Brian Renzenbrink a different job. Yeah. He is I moving. Brian moved, yeah. Yeah, Brian is moving. Congrats. Shout out Brian. Uh, also a friend of the podcast. So let's switch to Corded. Uh, we want to know, what does .io stand for? .io is just a, a, a different endpoint, effectively, right? So what, what's the, ago, what is the standpoint? What's the, what's the acronym stand for? Uh, technically nothing. <laughs> so it is common because I, I think in the nerdy computer science world, like IO stands for input-output is vaguely input, output. oriented around uh, what, what, a, what a computer scientist or software engineer would want. But realistically... <laughs> Corded.com is a spa in Virginia, yeah. so we didn't really have, we didn't really have an option to buy that. Well, you know, funny enough, we actually did try to buy it. No. But we, we, you know, it was like a fake listing. There, it was a yeah. fake listing. So, yeah. you know, the the .io, I think they opened up you know a bunch of domains and uh, yeah, of course, ago, and, yeah. and uh, the way we landed on it was it was available. Okay, uh, okay, that's good the, to know. And we thought that maybe. Corded.ai was a little cheesy, maybe, but uh, we went with .io. As a consumer, a third party, I would be very impartial to both, but okay. IO just sounded like, oh, was it a country? I was like, mm, no, that can't be it. It sounded, it sounds sophisticated mm -hmm. to a point where I, it was probably above my pay grade to understand mm -hmm. what IO, but now the, uh, we know it is. Uh, Dan's from it, Iowa, it, so maybe it's <laughs> Iowa, I'm just missing my block. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's right. Block, that's cool. right. Corded out of Iowa, yeah, okay. <laughs> I like the input output better though. It is, it is good. Yeah. Sean, why don't you give us uh, your elevator pitch for Corded mm -hmm. IO? So Corded brings uh, professional networking and workflow to help agents make better data-driven marketing, hiring, and referral decisions. That was understood. Same. That was good. That was good. Um, in terms of the, those three things that you mentioned, maybe kind of give us an elevator pitch of those three things, maybe 10 to 20 seconds. Yeah. So just so people can understand. Mm -hmm. I'll do hiring, you want to do marketing and then I'll sure, yeah, yeah. So just keep it, keep it uh, spread the love. So on the, on the marketing front, right, we take this really rich transaction data and transform it to be a pre-populated network of agents. So there's dynamic profiles, you can have team-based profiles, so junior team members can get uh, those, uh, you know, get credit for the deals that they participate on. Uh, because everyone has a profile, we then take market data and brand it to that specific agent. Mm -hmm. They can then share out awards that characterize their performance relative to their peers. 
they can create really up-to-date and insightful uh, market reports on a weekly, daily basis if they want to, mm-hmm. with live up-to-date information. So it's a way to get your word out there uh, about who you are and what you understand about the market. And soon, plug for our upcoming product, mm-hmm. you'll be able to invite your clients onto Corded so they get a personalized dashboard that helps them figure out that it's the right time to transact, and then the agent will know to go uh, speak to their, their client about it. Okay, that's great. Yeah, on the recruiting side of things, right, one of the, the kind of key things we've learned is agents do not use LinkedIn. It is not a particularly no. effective tool. You know, real estate agents are not using LinkedIn for yeah. either finding a brokerage to work for or hiring an agent to their team. Or yeah, their I don't know why that is. It's well, I, you know, it, I, our intuition when we found, when we were talking to people about this is that it doesn't have the right information. That at mm-hmm. a very basic level, you want to know where people work, what types of properties they sold, you know, how long have they been doing it. The, the experience that is about their, you know, kind of quote unquote production profile is, is really important. Yeah. Um, again, both for hiring people to be on a team or an office or who you're looking for. And then in addition to that, you just don't have a consolidated place that is easy to find all this information. It is, yeah, you're right. So yeah, in, right. in that regard, what people have been using our kind of pre-populated set of profiles as well as the kind of search criteria that we've, we've generated mm-hmm. is to find the right agents they want to build their teams, right? Mm-hmm. So folks that are working in a geographically complementary area or, you know, folks that are working in a specific type of property at a price point that they need on their team. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're looking for an agent that is focused on uh, open houses, mm-hmm. but higher end open houses, mm-hmm. right? For example, you really start whittling down to a, a subset of agents that have experience in that. Right. And you can actually do that on Corded in a way that you, you really can't with any of the other existing platforms. What if you wanted to do a high end open house, but you had no experience? Are you still able to, I don't know, uh, put your data in there so that it, your name shows up or? Yeah, absolutely. So the, in addition to your actual production characteristics, the things you can do are, are illustrate, you know, for example, in your about me section or add in your skills and keyword kind of search, right? Mm-hmm. So all of the qualitative information in addition to your production, yeah. what your specialties are, right. what you're wanting to do and what your, your kind of goals and achievements are. So a lot of those things can be added in addition to what their production characteristics are. And, you know, some of the things that are, 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 are maybe really foundational, especially we found in Miami, such as the ability to speak Spanish, right? Sure. Yeah. So the ability to find people on, on some of those um, components in, adduction, in, in addition to what they, they sell. Got it. So it's an agent search for agents that want to build other agents, in the, uh, recruit other agents uh-huh. into their team. And, and vice versa, right? So 50% of agents drop out in the first year, 70% have dropped out after year two, mm-hmm. national stats. Mm-hmm. The best place for someone to get set up in this industry is on a team. I agree. And yet, 100%. how do you figure out which teams are recruiting? It's very, very difficult. I have no so idea. So discovery how. about your amazing team talk with this wonderful media uh, angle that you guys have and all the landlord relationships that you have in New York, it's not that easy to be found by brand new agents who've just passed the test. No. And so it's there's impossible. kind of a two-sided uh, impact to that as well. Right, mm-hmm. yeah. I remember back in the day, the managers would say, well, if you want to build a team, you have to look at you know, who you're co-working with. Mm-hmm. And that was a good strategy, but it's also a very time-consuming, slow, drawn-out process. Mm-hmm. I mean, we met some good people that we've interviewed for our team through co-broking, but it was never efficient, uh-huh. right? Because we're focused on closing the deal. We don't really care so much about uh, recruiting you. Uh-huh. You know, shout out Jessica Wolf and some of the other girls that, you know, had worked with us for us 
whatnot. But yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a bottleneck process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of the industry, your success is dictated by your network. And that, that means where you work, who you work with, the referrals you create, ultimately the team that you build. Your network is your net worth. Your that's network right. is your net worth, that's mm-hmm. right. And, and one of the things that we, I think, are trying to think about is that network is naturally limited just by your ability to, to say who you know. Yeah. What is the 100%. digital augmentation of that mm-hmm. where you can actually think about people's, you know, on a, in a quantitative or a digital way to find alternatives to the people that you know, again, through each one of those components, where you work, who you work with, the referral network that you have, mm-hmm. and ultimately the team that you build. Right. Okay. No, that's really good. The more candidates, the better, and the more filters, the better. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and then and then on referrals, right? I mean, it's no surprise. That's the third to, component. Yeah, yes. it's no surprise to anyone who is in real estate that their clients are considering living in a more diverse geographical area than ever before. Mm-hmm. And it's great if you know 100 agents around the country, right? Uh, but how do you make sure that they, all the agents that are sending a deal to your market, know you? So we have taken what is a relatively complicated math and said, what's a client need? Which are the agents that match that experience? If I'm looking at the continuum building in South Beach, who produces between two to four million on the buy side? I can tell you exactly who those people are based on their selected transaction experience. And then I can show that to you in New York so that you can be sure that the person that you're recommending to your loyal client is actually the person with the most experience. Right, right. And it's great if that's within your company. If you want to keep that within, within your company, wonderful. But most agents work at a single office brokerage that has less than 20 agents. So most people don't have access to that kind of in-house network. And so, you know, we're just excited about creating those those connections and organic connections between um, all agents around the country. Mm-hmm. Danielle, do you know any brokers in Big Sky, Montana? I do not. Yeah, I mean, how, how would I find them? We don't have an office there. How would yeah. we find them, you know? Or do you know any agents in, um, I don't know, Yellowstone Club? Yeah, run the Yellowstone Club. Like, none of us know. Some Parker Rangers, maybe. Yeah, that's right. None of us know brokers that that run the Yellowstone Club. So, yeah, I mean, even even at Compass, I mean, if you think about it, the opportunity of what you guys are building is huge because we only refer people within our markets, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like we don't have an office in Lake Anna, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say Virginia because you, we talked about your was it Quarter.com is a spot in Virginia. Yeah, that's right. Richmond. <laughs> <Bridget. laughs> uh, we don't have a office in Morgantown, West Virginia, or mm-hmm. wherever. I mean, you know, there's thousands of cities all over America that we don't really do any business in. So, uh-huh. you know, what if we had a, a, a client's family member or relative that lives in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and they need. Not Helentown, I don't know why I said Allentown, but you know, but I know I'm sure I'm pretty sure it's a pretty robust real estate market there right now. You know, no, what do we sense. do? Like if we had a tool that we could say, okay, well let's look at Allentown, Pennsylvania, half a million to a million dollar home sales on the sell side, yeah. then that gives us the ability to not use Compass as a referral, but like uh, you know, whoever the local brokerage is there that is, uh-huh. you know, the master of their own universe in Allentown, um, that would really definitely be helpful for sure. And then would it be cool if uh, you know, we could tell you which agents have been highly rated by agents who have already sent them a referral in the past. Right. Oh, right? that's even bigger. So how, yeah. how are you, not just from your client service, but how are you specifically in terms of interacting with the referring agent? How quickly was the commission paid? How well did you take care of their clients? Oh, you know, all it's of like an internal Yelp review. Yeah. Agent to agent. 
Yeah, that's good actually. That's really good because that really puts the pressure on the referred agent to make sure they perform. Correct. Maybe not even close, but make sure they do their full due diligence and make sure that their job is done correctly. So uh, that definitely makes sense. A, a, a question on our end as a broker, how do you guys earn profits? How do you guys turn a profit? Yeah, so we definitely have an eye towards profitability. We're sure. very early, so we're we're not yet at that stage. Yeah. But you know, fundamentally, I think, you know, our the our the thesis, like what what Corded is is built off of, is first the goal to support the agent win in the future in a very you know ever changing and evolving landscape. Number two, because we're a third party company, right, that sits outside of a brokerage, we can provide services to all agents. Mm-hmm. When you spread, uh, you know your your services across all agents, you can do that quite cost effectively, right? Sure. So we're not just focused on X percent of agents that are working in this. You're not region focused on top ten percent of Miami brokers, exactly. right. yeah. And yeah. so you know there is some technology cost associated with building, of course, uh, but really we can service everyone, and that's how we hope to get to. How many licensed agents are in America? Do you know, roughly? So there's about 1.6 million licenses. Wow. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it, I mean, you can... T- 160,000 per- performers. Yeah, so you can, you can look 10, at, you know, you can, you can look yeah. at uh, Miami as an example. You have about 30,000 uh, people in Miami-Dade who have uh, a license and they've produced something, more than zero, over the last 12 months. 30% of those people, right, so uh, of that 30,000, 10,000 of them don't actually work in Miami. They have their headquarters, oh. uh, brokerages in Tampa or New York or somewhere else. Okay. And then within that 20,000, above three and a half million in production, so like they're probably full time, mm-hmm. you get down to 5,000. Wait, when you say three million, three and a half million in production, is that GCI or is that sales? Sales volume. Sales. Oh, sales that's not volume, much. Which is, which is a couple deals, it's a couple deals. Right, but in so, Miami right now, it's like so one house. <laughs> when, you, when you think of that ratio, right, it's it's five thousand out of the thirty thousand that are actually producing. Okay, right, and okay. so the numbers often say, you know, one point five million of, of the people yeah. who are full time, it's a lot less than that. Sure. Okay. So, let's just say, you know, one point six million one point six million licenses in the United States. You could get ten percent of the. Of the market, it's one hundred sixty thousand licenses. That's a that's that's a pretty good loyalty if you could get all the, the uh-huh. brokers to come in and, and support that data. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, one of way our, more than Compass. Brokers. Compass is only twenty five thousand agents, I believe. So yeah, and you know, one of the things that we've you know considered so much, if you look at this tail, so much is focused on that top ten percent of the people that sell the vast majority of real estate. Sure, yeah, yeah. But that other 90% presents an enormous opportunity. Those are folks that are either working on teams that might, be, might not be getting credit for their deals. Or part-time. They're part-time. Or, they're yeah. new entrants into sure, the sure, industry. Sure, yeah. In many ways, they're the agents that actually get the information asymmetry disadvantage. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. By the fact that they don't see so much of the market, that they might only be doing this part-time, that they've only been doing it for a couple of years. Mm. So one of the things that we've been thinking about is not just how do you enable the folks that are visible, that have strong connections, that are, you know, have such a great track record, but how do you enable them to find great folks on their team and how do you enable those other folks to find the right recruiting or referral opportunities? Oh, right, they're the ones that in many ways might have uh, an off-market deal, for example, but they don't know who to get in touch with. Okay. Um, and that type of an inventory actually, and, and you know that ability to monetize your network is impactful at that level. Right, right. Yeah, there's so much more that uh, Compass has not done 
that they are doing, which is um, not, you know, not a cut against us by any means, but uh, there's obviously so much more opportunity. Uh, well, you know, Compass has done an incredible job of creating tools for agents, for, yeah, think, right? And, and I think one of our orientations is is the attempt to do it not for a single brokerage, but the tools that are useful across brokerages, right? right? Things that get more valuable as more agents turn up. A, a proper network, right? Sure. The ability to generate a meaningful referral goes up as more agents are available to send referrals, sure. right? So I think in terms of, you know, those types of tools that complement each other, we would we think instead of kind of compete with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we have we have more. I'm I'm, I'm personally proud of this. We have uh, Compass is the most represented brokerage on the Corded platform. Yep. Yeah. Which doesn't which I think speaks to the fact that we're not actually doing overlapping things with Compass. We're kind of trying to connect people in an interoperable interbrokerage. When you say context. represented, does that mean as in they are the most used used? Bro, uh, you, the, like logged on more agents come from Compass, Compass than any other company. Okay, got it. Yeah, okay, on our platform. Got it. Okay, um, that's great. That's great. Yeah, it just speaks to uh, I guess our the power of our flexibility and willingness to learn and hopefully you know not be that that the complacent uh, broker that doesn't like technology. Yeah, and wonderful right. managers in Miami. Uh, like Yasser and Dominique yeah, yeah. often uh, often invite us to come uh, meet some of the agents. So oh, good. We're very thankful to, uh, to those folks. That's amazing. Yeah, shout out to them. Give us, we talked about metrics earlier, and I want to wrap up uh, this session with some last questions. We talked about metrics earlier. Give me your vision on what you want Corded to be one year to, from today for you two to be satisfied. Mm. Oh, great question. Satisfied. Not happy, satisfied, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think there's kind of a, uh, one way of thinking about that is um, what is the value accrued to a user of Corded in a year, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say, uh, you know, that's kind of at the micro level. So on that, I would say agents come to Corded, they get smarter, and specifically, they're able to take their active contacts and groom them, uh, sorry, that their contacts and groom them into active clients and convert that in a better way than they can uh, today. Mm-hmm. So Corded is helping them interface and know when to go interact with their clients so they can grow the group of active right. clients without doing too much extra work. I think at a macro perspective, we're in five of the top markets in the country. Yep. We have at least 40% of the active agents in each of those markets using the platform, and we have uh, a big chunk of those users coming back every day. Okay. So I kind of think about it both at the micro and the macro level. Okay. Dan, mm-hmm. do you have a... Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot about that micro component as well, right? And it comes from that just basic assumption, if we're creating value for our users, yeah. we will be able to create value as a company overall. And to, I think, a large degree from a, a product and an engineering perspective, it is making a product that is simple and useful and used. So in my perspective, it's it's all about engagement and adoption in the markets that we are in. And I think that that will compel us, obviously, to be able to go to these ones. So I'll be happy if we get to five or ten markets. I'll be satisfied if we have 100% locked in that value proposition across those three dimensions, even if it's at a simpler, mm-hmm. smaller level. Okay, understood. Uh, Daniel, do you have any uh, ending questions? Mm-hmm. Cord- Cord- there you go. 
what's been um, like the biggest unexpected challenge and biggest unexpected reward so far building the business? Challenge and reward, good question. I would say uh, on the challenge, it's the, you know, we kind of, we, I, I have some the, the shared experience with you both from Compass, where it was kind of early stage. But when I joined, I think it was just raised the Series C, so mm -hmm. the company was pretty well established. Um, then we obviously had a shared McKinsey experience, and now we're kind of started and kind of helping to, to run a company that's really early. If I just think about conversations that we were having at 7 a.m. this morning, we're talking about very near-term things that we have to like sprint towards, as well as really large conceptual strategic prioritization. So being able, the challenge is being able to think about what's right in front of you while the big goals can actually be prioritized in slightly different ways. So you have to be able to think on multiple levels uh, kind of at the same time and hold certain things constant so that you can actually do one thing well in any one session. Mm. So I'd say that's, that's challenging. Um, I'm not gonna also say that that's rewarding. I mean, if the company does well, that's rewarding. I think there are, <laughs> the, the rewarding thing for me is, um, especially coming from the McKinsey experience to, to Corden, you know, we were working in a project-based context where you're only working for more than you know eight weeks at max with right. the same people, right. which was great <laughs> if you hated the people that you worked with, and terrible if you loved your team. Right? Dan and I and Joe ended up just kind of back-to-back -back projects for four years, which was great, but we didn't really get to see the evolution of our team members through so much through that sure. process. And now we've been together with some team members for nine or ten months. So just seeing them grow and develop and being able to give them uh, opportunities for them to kind of uh, try out new things and get better at new things uh, has been incredible. And then we genuinely have this, this culture where people are, are really connected and it kind of feels like a small family. And that's been that's been a ton of fun. So I, I say the people part's been the most rewarding. I, I think you should brace yourself because you're going to cherish all these moments right now, right? The, the small early stage family style atmosphere, uh, back in the day, it was great. Remember this yeah. seven years ago, eight yeah. years ago when we started. I mean, it's it's and that back in the day is today. Yeah. Thanks yeah, to Steve Carell right. said that, and uh, Steve Carell said that in the, from the office. Like, yeah, yeah. I wish I knew what back in the day was. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's always it's always right now. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's true. You know that that family style startup feel is definitely uh, a special moment mm -hmm. within your lives. What about you? Oh, that's great challenge. You know, I would say the hardest thing right now is to constantly remind myself, Dan you are not an agent, <laughs> right? And so this idea Yeah, don't that, assume to know. It, right. you, yeah, yeah. My preference is, and again, I come from a, a, a total data nerd math background, right? My ideal like UI is an Excel spreadsheet, you know? Um, Agents don't, they don't have your brain. Well, you know, the, the, <laughs> what little is left. But um, I think that the, the challenge for that one is to just continually need to Assess. Am I making an assumption based on something I feel or I've heard an agent tell me they want? Right. Right. Or that this is a pain point and this is challenging. And throughout that process, it's been it's been difficult, right? And because I, I think there's this. If I ask myself, we can move really fast, but it's you come to the wrong answer. If you ask a lot of agents, it just takes a lot of time. But sure. you generally come to the right answer. And I think sure. that there's the balance of figuring out how to manage that process. So I think that that's been, that's been hard a little bit for sure. Um, on the rewarding side, I, I love working with agents. 
Yes. Oh, good. That's a good, they're a fun party, as it turns out. Yes, I think, yes, yes. They generally are. speaking, right? Very extroverted. They have the edge. Right? High There's EQ. High EQ. Low IQ, maybe? Who knows? Who knows? You know? But uh, <laughs> a lot of hustle. Right, and I think that there's an element of this that I appreciate so much because they are going after. Mm -hmm. And in one respect, they are like, please, if you can build this, I will use it every day. Yeah. But in the other respect, if you build something that's not useful, they will tell you. They'll be like, this I, this is too much work. You're asking too much from me. I'm on my phone eating a cheeseburger right. en route to an open house. Uh -huh. Uh, there's no way I can enter all this information, right. right? And so there's just like simple things like knowing when they'll have access to a proper keyboard versus phone. Right. Right? Yeah, and those yeah. are a, a lot of the function of, of learning about agents. and, and That's uh, true. So I leave a lot of keyboard-heavy functions to when I'm back in the office. So that's right. I'm yeah. not trying to do it on the phone. Um, sure. But yeah, work, so working with agents <laughs> and getting the opportunity to do it has been awesome. I think so much of it, we're always asking, you know, what's your... You know, what's your secret sauce? You know, how do you go about it? And trying to identify those consistencies of those trends across agents and to think to ourselves, right, there's a consistency in the things that make their lives hard and the ways in which they're successful. How do we capitalize and digitize parts of that to make it less painful or even more successful? Sure. To me, that's been um, one of the more uh, cool parts of this this particular endeavor. Let's cap this off with a final, to, leading off to your answer there, final question, I want to cap it off. What is one or two things that you've seen as a theme after meeting all these brokers from New York and Miami that are successful? Is there one or two things that you've noticed that they have in common? I'm always curious about this too. I mean, I'm surrounded by brokers, but what, what is it? Did, have you seen anything, noticed anything? They, they deal with rejection very well. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, you're going to be a great right? broker. I think that there is this element. We hear it all the time, right? I mean, like you don't expect to close every single deal, but you got to get out there doing it. And I think that there is just that ability to focus in, try to make the sale. If it works, great. And if it doesn't, you just move on. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to do that, that I, I love that. I think I've kind of seen two archetypes of agents. There's the kind of relationship gurus, right? This is like what you're saying. I'm not saying low IQ, but they're very high EQ, very. right? Very social, you know, they make strong personal connections. They know how to stay in touch. They visit when they travel to another market. They're usually great at referrals. Their clients love them. They're taking them around town, you know, great buyers, agents, whatnot. That, and that was kind of a very traditional segment of it. Sure. Then there's the kind of innovation-minded agents, I would say. And these are the ones that are paying attention to the new technologies in the space, that are thinking about how they might uh, take advantage of being on a reality TV show, mm -hmm. work with a power buyer, or be the preferred agent for a new tech startup. And they're constantly trying new things. And I think that group is always small relative to the relationship sure, gurus. Sure. But now we're starting to see some overlap and that second group growing. Okay. And I think it's actually really important for people to try to flex that mindset because like we said, like we've said a few times, there's a lot of new things out there. And so being totally closed off to what's coming uh, may not really set you up for future success. And so uh, it's, it's encouraging for us to see a lot of those kind of innovation focused folks. And that, those are a lot of folks that are using our platform. That was awesome. That answer, two sex, two parts, two types of brokers. Uh, put that in the highlight reel. Thank you guys so much. I'm going to put in the show notes where to reach you guys on social, 
Uh, do you, Dan, you want to share your TikTok? You know about TikTok? Uh, I have heard of TikTok. <laughs> you have heard of TikTok? It's, it's great. Tech guy, yes. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll put in the website. I'll, I'll put in your emails and, and you know how to reach you guys and whatnot. Thank you so much for your time. All the best to you. Let's recap again in a year or two to see where you guys are at. Yeah, just as a, uh, a refresher to our audience. And um, obviously, myself, we talked about Levy Meyer earlier. Shout out, Levy. Uh, Danielle will always be here to support and, you know, friends of uh, the, the real estate space. So thank you so much. And, um, you know, that was great. Thank you, Danielle. Thanks, Tom. Much appreciated. Much appreciated. Thank you.